0: Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter... Gabe Dowrick. Hello, Ben Phelps. Hello, Gabe Dowrick. <laughs> Good. Well, you said your full name. <laughs> yeah, that's true, that's true. So, yeah, touche, touche. Look, Gabe, apparently every year Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So, as usual, we ask the big question, which movie did it better Today we'll be reviewing two twin movies about a protagonist and his loved one who must fight for survival on a post-apocalyptic Earth that's populated with dangerous predators. It is Oblivion vs. After Earth. Let the shenanigans and games begin. Ben, this will be our shortest podcast
1: ever. (laughs) Oh, no spoilers. Sorry. We don't want people to know where we're going with this one, but
0: damn. All right. (laughs) Uh, Look, I've got thoughts, but hold on to those thoughts. Hold on. Hold on. No, no. True. true. Because, as always, Gabe, we have to kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 19th of April, 2013, Oblivion was released, and here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database... A veteran assigned to extract Earth's remaining resources begins to question what he knows about his mission and himself. All right, Gabe, Daurick, did you originally catch Oblivion when it was released at the cinema? And what was that experience like?
1: Ben, I did not. Um, I'm not quite sure why. I think the previous year I had seen Tom Cruise in Jack Reacher, which I liked quite a lot, and also in Rock of Ages, which I liked less than Jack Reacher. But... For some reason, I didn't see this at the movies and I have to say, I regret it. What about you?
0: Yeah, I saw it at the movies. I had read about the practical effects used, the practical visual effects used to make the film. I'd heard about the incredible production design. I really loved the director's previous work with Tron, heard great reviews. So I was pretty jazzed for this film and this was in a window of time where Tom Cruise was – Kind of find himself in a post jumping on couch on Oprah TV world in which he mm. was, he hadn't quite kicked off the franchise of Mission Impossible. And I hadn't seen him actually in a sci fi movie, as I recall. And seeing the poster design, the trailer, I was pretty excited. So I saw it's on the big screen. And we'll get this into the review, but I've seen it many, many times since on my beloved home, medium-sized screen. And when you say
1: he hadn't kicked off Mission Impossible, do you sort of mean Mission Impossible 3 came out in 2006, then he'd made the next one after that, I think it's called Ghost Protocol, 2011, but he hadn't quite hit that point where they seem to be now popping out at an exponential rate.
0: Exactly. And also he was just at the beginning of that journey where, like Russell Crowe as Maximus in Gladiator, Let me entertain. No, I was gonna say, let me entertain you. Wasn't he say? Wait, are you not entertained? Let me entertain you. What's that? That's Robbie (laughs) Williams, dude. (laughs) 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 Yeah, so he wasn't actually quite. Yeah. Sort of possessed by Rob Williams. Ah, they're all no, a bit campy. He wasn't kind of really in his groove, risking right. his life, doing his own stunts, learning how to fly planes and so on. He was doing that at the start, but now we're recording this in 2020 and he was he's now locked into that. That's his brand. His brand is Let Me Entertain You. Oh, let me entertain you. No, not that. Um, are you not entertained by performing stunts where he hangs off planes and hangs out of buildings and there's all sorts of crazy shenanigans and rarely injures himself. And this was a much more contained film. It wasn't so driven by the stunts as the trailer portrayed. And I was just really excited to see this, Um, but mainly it was because of the director. Like, Tron looked visually fantastic and Joseph Kaczynski did that, so... I had all my black chips pushed over on the Joseph Kaczynski... Uh, wow. Uh, what do you call it? The roulette colour? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I was pushing on, mixing metaphors here. I was playing poker and blackjack at the same time and I was all in.
1: Maybe that's why I didn't rush out because I, I think it's fair to say I was not as moistened for Kaczynski as you were. Tron, while I loved the soundtrack and appreciated some of the visuals, I found it's, by and large, a kind of empty affair. But, but to its credit, they're a heck of visuals and a heck of a soundtrack.
0: Yeah, he's an incredible visualist. Um, all right, let's save our thoughts on Joseph Kaczynski for our review and jump a little bit on in 2013, precisely to the 31st of May, when After Earth was released after Oblivion. And here's its synopsis from IMDb. A crash landing leaves... Katai Rage. Is that his name? Katai? Yeah, Rage. We'll get to that. Fuck. We'll get to that. <laughs> a crash landing leads Katai Rage and his father, Cipher, stranded on Earth. A millennium after, events forced humanity's escape. With Cipher injured, Katai must embark on a perilous journey to signal for help. All right. That's a big sigh here. Here we go. Gabe. Talk me through when and how, if maybe, you first watched After Earth.
1: Uh, I think I'd seen tiny bits of it here and there, but I sat through the entirety of this last night at home while eating a bag of parmesan cheese, just eating shaved and cheese straight from the bag, just sitting there eating handfuls of shaved and cheese with nothing else, just the shaved and cheese from the bag.
0: Wow, that's like a really visceral image. It sort of sounds very train-spotting-esque. Were you a beer in one hand?
1: No, no, no. No? No, just just the cheese, (laughs) just the cheese.
0: Were there any liquids at all, a glass of water? I mean, that's quite dry.
1: Oh, it was quite dry. Yep, it was, but, uh, you know- Compared to the movie, it was incredibly pleasant. <laughs> uh, actually, look, I don't mind uh, sharp and cheese. So I quite liked it. Yes, it might seem weird, and yes, the image it conjures might seem sad.
0: But um, <laughs> coupling that particularly with sitting and watching this movie, oh, boy. I've got an image of you on the couch lying down, propped up the pillow, watching the TV. Now, this is the bad part. Nude, except undies, okay, with Parmesan cheese just dribbled over your chest. It's a very, ooh, a very
1: scary thought. It's not far from the truth. What I'd actually do is pour a small pile of Parmesan cheese out onto my chest, and then I could just just pick it up and eat it. And uh, you know, it wouldn't melt or anything like that. Parmesan cheese has quite a high threshold for melting. Uh, it might be just with the room temperature stuff, just get a little bit wet. Uh, not from sweat or anything, just from, you know, what do you call moisten moistened condensation or something? But, you know,
0: that's all right. Chest moisture. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> you see, I've got this amazing image of Toad, uh, yeah. the mutant from X-Men with uh-huh, that tongue, okay. yep. and you with your tongue just- Ooh, nice. Just sort of zipping it out Sweet. and plucking a tiny bit of cheese on the tip of your tongue, retracting it, as you watch the antics of Kitai and Cypher unfold. That's right. I went through that whole bag of cheese
1: as well, 500 grams of it. Wow, okay.
0: (laughs) All right, putting aside the cheese. (laughs) Yeah,
1: what cheese were you eating when you watched uh, After Earth then?
0: All right, I was cheese-free. I watched this uh, only a week or so ago in preparation, especially for this pod. Another great example of when we have a twin movie situation in a given year You see one film, often the first film, or the film that's been best reviewed, and you think to yourself, why bother going back for the second film with the same premise that's had a pretty shitty review? So this goes into that Ben Phelps quiver with many broken arrows, in which I've sort of pulled out that broken arrow to watch, especially for this podcast for the first time, but up until now, had no motivation and no desire. And that will be apparent in the upcoming review. But, but. Before we do that, as always, Gabe, let's do a little history lesson. So let's compare these two movies by finding out how we got here with a shallow dive into the Hollywood history behind these two flicks. Now, do you know the origins of either of these movies? Because rather than me just leading off, I might just sort of throw it to you in case you're already aware of the broad brushstrokes of their origins.
1: Um, I mean, I think you could fill in more details, but I believe uh, Oblivion started as a uh, graphic novel, though I'm not sure if it was ever published, an unpublished graphic novel that uh, uh, Joseph Kaczynski had written, which triggered,
0: I think, some sort of bidding war. Is that correct? Yeah, you totally nailed it. Right. I think the lore, the folklore had been that this was actually an instance where director had created a piece of intellectual property based on his screenplay to kind of get energy around the idea. Because around this time, every single bit of IP was being, you know, uh, bought, like every comic, every book. And do you remember that window of time when they were optioning things like board games? The Monopoly movie. Yeah, we're still waiting for Ridley Scott's Monopoly film, aren't we? That's right. I think Brad Pitt's attached to that. Like, he's actually driving around a Porsche. As the Monopoly man or the boot? (laughs) He is the Porsche. Oh, nice. He's a a Transformer. Oh, cool. I think, though, besides Monopoly, there was Battleships that actually came about. I don't think they've made Candyland. Some of them were ludicrous. Like, there was actually, like, a, a Snakes and Ladders, or I think it's called- Shoots and Ladders in the US right. version as well. I mean, but, God, some of these are very simple board games.
1: Yeah, but I'd watch like Alexandra Arger's Hungry Hungry Hippos.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like I'd watch the shit out of that. That sounds fucking awesome. Uh, well, what basically Joseph he did was an eight-page treatment, and then he pitched that in 2007 to Barry Levine and Jesse Berger at Radical Publishing as a graphic novel. And you're right. What actually happened was they developed it further and further pretty much like storyboards, uh, artwork, you know, inspirational artwork that would sort of define the visuals and the tone of the eventual film. And then what actually happened was the script was acquired in a heated auction by Disney originally, and therefore there wasn't actually a need to finish the graphic novel. And, of course, being Disney, once they realised that it wasn't going to be PG, they then kind of passed it on to Universal.
1: Oh, really? So Disney bought it then, Then I mean, what what in it that, oh, they say the F word once, that's right, and there's a little bit of violence.
0: Yeah, and this is also too like it was a Disney brand, so they're fine having their M-rated, M-classified Marvel movies under the Marvel brand, and even when they sort of had Touchstone, which was their adult mm. brand, the adult label, but this was actually bought by Disney, you know, with that sort of big D in the big I, And I went, you know what, this is too much. Because I think, I could be wrong, but I think Tron actually might be PG-13 or PG. Tron's Disney, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the only reason it was Disney was because the first Tron was Disney. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Anywho, that's where it came from. Yeah, right. Now, as for After Earth, this one's interesting. Have you done any reading about the origins of this one? Uh, I did because I remember when it came out, there was sort of
1: speculation that this was, in a way, Will Smith's Battlefield Earth and had somehow or is somehow connected to uh, Scientology. Um, but that's all I kind of really know. Is, is that correct at all?
0: Uh, yes and no. So I think you're right to say it actually did end up coming what Battlefield Earth was to John Travolta.
1: Yeah, a stain on his resume. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, this was a Will Smith vehicle through and through. He can see this story when he was watching the television show called I Shouldn't Be Alive with his brother in law, Caleb Pinkett, Charter Pinkett's brother. And it was originally not a science fiction story, but about a father and son crashing their car in the mountains or some remote region with the son having to go out and get rescue for his father. But then Smith himself decided to change the setting to 1,000 years in the future which, of course, then imposed a high production budget. And this is the ambition of Will Smith, and you can't say that Will Smith isn't confident. This was going to be a whole universe, and this is in the, I guess, the time when everyone was really getting excited about Marvel's cinematic universe. This was meant to be the first film in a trilogy, right? Yeah, <laughs> he, yeah he, uh, he contacted um, Gary Whitter, who had done the book of Eli, which we actually did a review of in a previous Twin Movie Podcast episode, which is a simple logline for the movie. And that is, a father and son crash land on Earth 1,000 years after it's been abandoned by humankind. And that was it. Yeah, right. And so impressed with that idea, we then fleshed out it further and pitched it to him and then became the first employee on the project. Uh, and then in Night Shyamalan, he of The Sixth Sense came on board later And it was actually the first time in 20 years that he accepted a project based on someone else's screenplay and the first time in which uh, he doesn't actually appear on screen as an actor, which is kind of makes sense because it's pretty much a two-hander for the entire time. But, yeah, that's the origins of this film. This was going to be Will Smith's vehicle, his own cinematic universe. Wow. Yeah.
1: So most of that stuff has obviously not- come to pass. There is no After Earth video game. Clearly, there is no After
0: Earth sequel, is there? When we get to the marketing, missteps and madness, I've got a few surprises for you. Great. Awesome. So why don't we start with our review? Let's start with Oblivion first as it was released first. So, Gabe, over to you. Did you like it? What didn't float your boat? And was it a good execution of the common premise it shares with After Earth? Yeah. Uh I feel like this is a movie from
1: a guy who saw the movie Moon and went, oh, I like that, but it would be better if it had way more spaceships and flying around and action, <laughs> you know. Like four years earlier, he was like, yeah, it's pretty good, but, you know. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot to admire about this movie. I My guess is that I don't quite like it as much as you. Um, but having seen it a couple of times, it's definitely a movie that I feel has grown on me or got better with each time I've watched it. I think there's a really fantastic attention to detail in this movie. Um, And I really like the world building of it. It seems both sort of very futuristic, but then also believable or something. Um, uh, And, hey, I love TC. I love TC. Um, Is it the best execution of this uh, story? Certainly better than the other one, but yeah, I don't know. What do you? What are your? What are your big thoughts on this one?
0: Yeah, I agree with everything you've said. Uh, I guess one thing I'll say is this: I agree. I think this film actually gets better on each rewatch, and that's very uncommon for me these days. In fact, there are so many good movies out, and there are so many great TV shows on, and I've got this huge Netflix list and a list on my app of all these TV shows and movies I haven't watched at all. For at all, and must watch for the first time. This one is actually one that I would put on put on TV, I reckon, once per year as a guilty pleasure, maybe once every two years. Um, and we've discussed, like, what defines a guilty pleasure. In this case, actually, I wouldn't even call it a guilty pleasure because I actually think it's a really high-quality film. And why it scratches itches for me, I think the first thing, which took me a while to realise, is the soundtrack by M83.
1: Oh, how good is it?
0: It is fantastic. I was playing it today actually around the house just as everyone's having lunch and just sort of, you know, pottering. And there aren't many soundtracks that actually can be freestanding. And I used to actually write screenplays to this score over and over. So I think that's also locked in a resonance with the film for me because I've heard the music so many times in the past just playing in the background whilst I'm writing. But it – I mean, look, i, I got to say I've only been back to watch – Tron Legacy once or twice since it was first released in 2010. And the only reason why I think that film resonates with me is the score by Daft Punk, mm. similar situation, except that's all, that's all. And when I tried watching it recently about six months ago, I was pretty bored after six months. Whereas this film, it uses the score as well, if not better, than Daft Punk's score in Tron Legacy. But I just find it really interesting that it managed to be both grandiose, get very contained, which links into your comment about Joseph Kaczynski watching Moon and going, this but bigger. <laughs> yeah. Um, because when you look through the cast in this film, it's only about five or six people, right? Yeah, totally.
1: TC a couple of times, <laughs> you know. Spoilers. Morgan Freeman, the Kingslayer and
0: Olga. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, Andrea Reisenberg, Reisberg? What's her name again? Andrea Reisborough? Reisborough? Reisborough, yep. And then, like, lots of extras for a very short window of time on planet Earth. And Melissa Leo. That's it. Like, it's actually a very contained movie. It sort of reminds me of, in some ways, an independent movie because it has lots of practical effects, a lot of stuff that's sort of shot in camera. Instead of computer generated effects, which makes it to me more mm. textured, more tangible, more realistic. Um, I just, so I guess for me, what resonates is I like the idea of clones in films. And again, spoilers if you haven't seen this film, and if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, but that's actually a key detail. I like the idea of cloning in films. Uh, I loved Moon for that reason. I love the idea of- You don't like Prestige for that reason, though. Come on. (laughs) Not as much as you. I love it. Podcast listeners, if you want to hear my review of The Prestige (laughs) versus uh, Ed Norton in The Illusionist, I direct you back to one of our very first podcast episodes in Twin Movies. But, yeah, back to this. Look, um, I I think it's remarkable that it feels very- Real, the world very grounded, and I read about the production designer being inspired by the work of Kubrick. And Kubrick, when he did um, 2001, actually hired NASA engineers to design the, the 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 spacesuits, the spaceships. Like the entire film was designed from a scientific base by people who worked at NASA, and then just applied it in the future. This film's the same. So, for example, the bubble ship that. Tom Cruise rides around in, which is almost its own character, is based on uh, what's called the Bubble Chopper, the bu- Bubble Helicopter, which uh, I think the director Joseph Kosinski saw at the Museum of Modern Art in New York because this it's so iconic. It's like as iconic as you know the first colored Apple iMac. It's one of those great examples of sensational and groundbreaking industrial design. And then they basically designed the. Spaceship based on that. Uh, Apparently, Tom Cruise, who's a pilot, surprise, surprise, apparently had some sort of say as to the placement of controls, (laughs) (laughs) which does sound so Tom Cruise, doesn't it? Sure, sure. Very much. But, like, everything feels like that great example of you could see this future evolving. Like, they shot it in Iceland, and so it's something that looks alien to us in Australia or the US or the UK, but it's still actually part of part of our current world. Mm. It just looks so alien to us with that black soil and those huge cliff tops. Ah, oh, it's beautiful though. It looks incredible, doesn't it? And so I just find the film uh, very evocative. Uh, it's, I think, one of the biggest reasons is what I mentioned before, which is that it has minimal computer generated effects. Well, we should we should chat about that
1: because they do this really interesting thing, which is. The, what do you call his home base? What is that? He's like, his house? I guess it's his fancy
0: house. It's basically, like, a sort of airborne flat or apartment, isn't it? It's his house.
1: Totally. I mean, you'd love to live there. I mean, how yeah. nice would it be just sitting on that balcony listening to the M83 score? You could almost have <laughs> not the rest of the movie. just chilling out there, you know. I'd watch that, you know. Oh, totally, totally. But- didn't they didn't they shoot that? Obviously not practically, but they built that and then they used I think it was eleven giant screens that would um that circled the the set which had all of the um sort of sunset and vistas. Is that right?
0: Yeah, Italian totally alto. It. They actually took a uh, red camera up to this, you know, incredible peak and they shot for like thirteen days. And they just shot like the entire day from like, you know, eleven or so different camera angles. And then they played that back on set on these giant screens outside the windows of TC and Andrea's, you know, little apartment. And that actually then lit the inside of the space and actually gave them a sense of height and whatever. I mean, it pretty much, Mm. this is seven years or six years before The Mandalorian used this technology in a revolutionary way on Disney+. Plus. It's pretty much- That isn't it. It's like it's somewhere between that and good old-fashioned blue screen, all those effects with Charlie Chaplin where they'd project, you know, a train behind him with a projector and he'd be like running on a stage trying to run a train. It's sort of like halfway between old-school technology like that and this modern way where they use kind of computer game engines to light an entire scene with just giant LCD screens.
1: Yeah, I don't know if there's some sort of weird splitting hairs thing for me, but I I like this. I'm not a huge fan of just you know how much blue screen green screen gets used in movies now. You know, you like we always joke. You look at the behind the scenes of Marvel movies, and they're all just shot with the same three point lighting setup, and the characters standing on apple boxes, and it seems really tired. But doing this for some reason, I don't know, it just feels like you're sort of combining those things. You went and you shot the plates. Now you're on a a, a set and you've got them um, up there and the actors can see them and that sort of the light that you'd maybe never otherwise get, you know, that just sort of spills off that, hits them in a much more naturalistic and interesting way than just, you know, uh, comping in a digital sunset later and then throwing some lens flare in the foreground.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean... Look, you and I are are the same in that we don't dislike any technological development if it enhances or makes something better. Like, we're all for that. The problem is is that often when they move to new territory with technology, there's this sort of beta process where essentially it looks crappy. Like, the first digital cameras were like that. Like, there's this window where it's evolving and so the standard seems less. So when they move from 35mm to the first digital cameras, you know, the resolution was 1080p. It was like a quarter of the resolution of 35 mil and it was just disappointing. And now we've reached a point where they're at 4K and it's the same resolution as 35 mil and so it's fine. This kind of is the same in that when I watch, say, a Marvel movie where they're using those big blue screens and whatever and they watch the movie, the backgrounds just look fake to me. Like if they got them to look naturalistic, to look realistic, I'm all on board. Great. But- what I love about this, and also the Mandalorian, is a, it just looks real for a start, and b, I think also too, it does definitely help the performances. It just feel, I think, it helps the actors. They feel more grounded. Apparently, Tom Cruise said it was the best set he'd ever worked on because he just felt like he was actually in that Sky Tower um, because it looked like he was. And that's obviously something that's important to him. I mean, the fucking
1: maniac went and learned to fly, you know. Jets for Top Gun Maverick, directed by Joseph Kaczynski. Like, obviously, that sort of verisimilitude is important to him because, I mean, any of those movies, yeah, you could have just done that. You could have just done it in front of a green screen and just keyed it in later. Like, you didn't ha- you didn't have to go to that effort, you know. Um, but they did, and it looks great.
0: Yeah. Well, apparently, uh, the director, Joseph Kaczynski, and cinematographer Claudio Miranda, they actually – themselves didn't enjoy the blue screen mats in Tron Legacy. So, obviously, they were reacting to what they had to go to this. Um, By the way, I just found my notes, and apparently it was 21 front screen projectors. Oh, okay. uh, Acting as this huge sort of wraparound background outside the windows of the Sky Tower. Uh, And they were like 500 by 42 feet. Wow. Which is huge. Wow. Which is 152 by 13 metres. So, pretty big, yeah. So, all encompassing. Um, And what
1: about the plot, Ben? Do you you, you love the story of Jack uh, and his love for
0: Julia? Well, look, I wasn't tired by having Tom Cruise play another character called Jack in the same year, so I was on board for this, Jack. Um, Look, this is a funny review to do, Gabe, because I can't quite put my finger on why I liked it. It's one of those examples of something where I just enjoy the experience of this movie. So I'm going to, in real time, try to critically deconstruct what it is about it because I can't quite say I love the acting or I love the plot. Um, I'm such a sucker for music that it just forgives so many sins for me. But let me talk you through it. Um, I think Tom Cruise is really good. I think he's actually- What do you mean actually? Quite restrained. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, he's restrained. Um, I think in t- in age he's actually become that. Like we're, we're a long way past Born the Fourth of July and, uh, you know, I don't think he even cracks that big of cheesy smile at all in this movie. Like, he's very restrained, measured. It sort of matches his character as someone who's doing a dangerous job every day. Um, I like the way this film sort of sets up this sense of unease. He doesn't quite feel settled, even though everything on the face of it is settled. And that's really carefully calibrated to give you enough information, but not too much. Like, you do buy that these guys are a couple at the start, but- But he also just seems unhappy. And when he goes to his little secret hidey hole, his little cabin in the woods, like, that's clearly a secret. That's a sense of he's cheating on his wife with another life, even though there's no other person around. And that's kind of cool. Like, there's part of me that really gets that idea, not not of cheating on in a cabin in the woods, but- No, he's just
1: got his vintage porn mags. He just goes there to jack it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's right. But I actually kind of like the idea that in 2020, seven years after this film was released, there's something kind of very, something that resonates with me about this idea of kind of yearning for the non-digital. And I use digital technology all through my life. And I don't know if I could let go of that, but I do like that moment when he goes to the cabin in the woods, puts on a baseball cap shoots some hoops with the basketball, plays a record, I think, Uh, has magazines, it's wooden, it's very earthy and homey. And I think a lot of us kind of can understand that. Like it's a great example of it just feels grounded and real opposed to what is a very typical science fiction environment where he lives, which is like glass, metal, clean, sterile, his little white suit, lots of, uh, no colour at all. Like the whole film is textured very much in shades of whites, blacks, greys. When he's outside that little cabin in the woods, mm. so I sort of appreciate that desire that he has, that he feels an affinity for the old, that can't quite put his finger on why. And I'm actually surprised they save the spoiler until what the last is it the
1: last twenty minutes. Which bit when he fights him when he realizes he's a clone and fights himself.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think, well, I guess there's two spoilers. There's one he fights himself as a clone and the second spoiler is as he's going back to the spaceship in the last five, 10 minutes. Oh, that's spoiler. (laughs) You then kind of get like a flashback to how he actually got to the planet in the first place and you realise that, uh, spoilers to our podcast listeners, that he and his on-screen wife were actually, not husband and wife, but actually co-pilots and they were a team of about 10 people, uh, including his real wife, and they were flying to meet this alien spaceship, were sucked into it and implicitly have been cloned ever since. So he has an awareness that basically the, the first version of him is long gone, but he's still himself. Um, I think it's a really cool reveal. And yeah, I love the way they show that photograph where there's a photograph that he has in his room, which looks like Andrea is kissing Tomio on the cheek but it's a photograph taken from an accidental moment on the spaceship mm. where she's leaning across him. Um, yeah. I just like all those details. Like there's so many details that to me if you watch a second time or a third time or a fourth time, be it the technology or the cinematography or little sort of clues, they're so subtle in the first viewing you actually might miss them, which might have been to the film's fault actually when it was first released, but actually resonate on a second viewing. Yeah, there's some real nice subtlety there, particularly
1: around that. Uh, photograph that you mentioned where uh, Andrea Riseborough's character, Vic, obviously has feelings for Jack, or the original version of her did, and her clones now have the sort of residual leftover of that, but he doesn't have the same feeling towards her. And I think it's played really nicely and subtly in the film. I have to say for Myself, uh, I think this movie starts really interestingly and strongly, but the further it goes and the more it gets involved in the sort of uh, rebel alliance plot, I guess the less I'm into it. That to me feels, I mean, it's it's not badly done. It's all nicely executed. Just movies where people fly spaceships into the mothership and then detonate themselves, you know, I've seen it. I've seen it before.
0: You saw it in ID4 where he puts it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: You know? Um, so so I guess the that machination is less interesting. You know, you kind of think, oh, I can't remember what they call the humans before he realises they're humans. Scavs? Is it Scavs? Yeah,
0: Scavs. Something like that. So you think they're aliens at the start.
1: Oh, did you realise? You totally know they're going to be humans. I think in the trailer you heard Morgan Freeman's voice or something, you know, like whatever I, I just feel like i would have <laughs> i would have watched it a uh, european non-plot version of this which was just some sort of weird relationship drama set only in the house with an m83 soundtrack between tom cruise andrea riseborough and olga kurylenko
0: yeah okay like
1: the this sci-fi plot of the intergalactic war was the thing i liked least about this movie
0: Yeah, okay. I mean, we'll put it this way. You can see the influences of this film uh, throughout, right? Like, for example, the drones, the killer drones, I mean, they pretty much resemble... uh, Who's Wally's mate? Eva? Eve in Wally? Oh, yeah, okay, sure. (laughs) Like, Ted Bringer, right? Um, Moon, you have the great example of someone being cloned and discovering that they're actually not who they think they are. There's that one. I think Solaris is infused throughout this film, Oh,
1: totally. I mean, fuck Solaris. All versions of Solaris. Uh, yeah, that's right. I'm, gonna, I'm going to bat hard for the Soderbergh one too. Solaris rules. Oh,
0: wow. Nice, nice. I, I think, yeah, I guess this comes back to pretty pictures, right? So the director, Joseph Kaczynski, is an architect by training. He actually still lectures in architecture, which I find quite amazing. So huh. he's quite an interesting person in that, as well as being a storyteller, I mean, obviously, he kind of came up with the concept of this more than the screenplay and he's more of a visualist. The whole film looks pretty. Like, it's a very controlled, measured film, right, which very much, I think his style very much suits science fiction. Would you agree?
1: Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, until we see Top Gun Maverick, I don't think he has uh, any other genres. Oh, no, he made that. What else was the other one he made? The firefighting one. The
0: firefighting one, which I never saw. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Oh, it is good, is it? Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good. Although that has a very different from memory. I think that sort of apes more of a, you know, um... Who's um, Discount Michael Mann, that guy who was on Chicago Hope? Discount Michael Mann.
0: Now I'm really curious.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. He directed The Kingdom. Oh,
0: I love Peter Berg. Yeah,
1: Peter Berg. So, look, I love Peter Berg too.
0: I love me some Peter Berg.
1: Don't get me wrong. I'm sorry, Discount Michael Mann. I didn't really mean that. You're you're more like half price Michael Mann, you
0: know. (laughs) Peter Berg actually did Battleship, by the way.
1: (laughs) Oh, we'll see. Okay. Oblivion is... I think that came out the same year as this, in fact. Oblivion is so much better than Battleship, which is just
0: terrible. Look, I actually think that Oblivion feels austere and that actually could Mm. be a problem for some people, that it might feel emotionally distant. I actually found an emotional resonance. Like, I actually did enjoy the tension between um, Melissa Leo's character, who we should talk about. Did you pick up that she wasn't human at any stage?
1: Uh, I think not until the twist, although... You know, it's it's certainly one of those movies where you're like, well, something's up here, you know.
0: What I thought was cool about it is that Melissa Leo has that accent, which I think very much grounds her as being human, right? Mm-hmm. Like where's she from? She's in the Midwest or Georgia or I mean, I'm being I'm being very unsophisticated and actually acknowledging where her accent's from. But you know, it's that Holly Hunter kind of accent, right? Like mm-hmm. I think by casting someone like her who often plays working class characters or struggling characters, uh, I think it actually removed any perhaps suspicion you may have that she's not human. Had she had a British accent, a hoity-toity British accent, like some sort of Doctor Who villain, you may have actually suspected that she wasn't the real McCoy. So that was actually smart casting, I thought. And I kind of like love those details. You know, we talk about the use of vernacular in a world, like a way to kind of ground it as being real, where people use certain terminology and you actually don't know what that terminology is or what those acronyms are, but they use it enough that you go, okay, I don't know what they're talking about, but it sounds like it it works in this world. And therefore I believe this world. And there's that great phrase where she asks them regularly at the end of a, a mission, are you an effective team? It's like a recurring kind of uh, question she asks and they've got to answer that. And, there's actually a similar expression where I think Will Smith says to his son in After Earth, take a knee, take a uh, knee. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, that doesn't work and we'll get to that. <laughs> but I like when movies do that. Like it's like, you know, it's like a way of placing you in their special space. Like, okay, they've thought this through. This is the way that they talk. So that felt like three-dimensional from my point of view. Um I guess getting back to your point about the scabs, I didn't realize initially that they were human. I hadn't seen the trailer beforehand to avoid being spoiled. So I was surprised. Um, so, everything that followed where we learned that they were the remaining humans on Earth, uh, I thought was cool. Um, I, For me, I agree. It gets a bit weak when the drones attack them in their hidey hole. But to me, the ending where Morgan Freeman sacrificed his life with Tom Cruise clone number 49, I really liked. I think the biggest problem I've got is that Tom Cruise manages to get Morgan Freeman into that spaceship and no one detects it. Like, really? Like they don't have X-ray machines, they don't have some sort of technology that would actually verify that it's not his uh, real wife, Olga, and... It's just some sort of old dusty guy. <laughs> old dusty guy. <laughs> that's a stretch. That's a stretch. <laughs> it's, ju- it's just an old dusty. All uh, you've
1: brought me is an old dusty guy. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, that's a bit. And then the- they get to have their cake and eat it too where Tom Cruise can sacrifice himself, but then his other clone can turn up at the very end and just keep banging his ex-wife.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, totally. You know. like, it's like a total win-win, isn't it? Like he get- This is like the ultimate Tom Cruise movie. He gets to b- sacrifice himself and be a hero. But they'd still get to survive.
1: Yeah. yeah. But what happens if another another Tom Cruise clone turns up and then another one? Well. And then another one and it's got to be a- I think
0: we all know what happens there. I'd watch a movie where- <laughs>
1: Never mind. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I wasn't going there. Oh, okay. uh, Look, I think we're in dangerous territory. <laughs> each to their own. All right. <laughs> yeah, look, Um. I also think it's, I don't know, like- I think it's a great example of Morgan Freeman also elevating a movie with his sort of presence. Like, he's just great, isn't he? Like, you can cast him in anything and it's a cliche, but I would actually listen to him read the phone book and this film benefits from that. Have uh, they cast Okay, someone- okay, okay. Hold on. Hold on.
1: I don't believe this for a second. I don't believe this because have you seen Eye for an Eye, Alpha just getting started, going in style, Ben-Hur... Momentum, Last Nights, Dolphin Tale 2, (laughs) Ruth and Alex, Uh, uh, Transcendence, Last Vegas, Uh, The the magic of Bell Island. You say you'd listen to him read a phone book, but you didn't get out and see any of these fucking movies. <laughs> are
0: these all films starring Andrea Riseborough? No, these are all movies that Morgan Freeman did between the movies that you did see. No, the point I'm saying is that I wouldn't. I didn't go to see Oblivion because of Morgan Freeman, but when he appears, okay, he elevates the movie. Fair enough. Whereas those films you're talking about, I saw him on many DVD covers when there were still DVD stores around the like late. 2010s, late 2000s, when he and – who was it? Him, Bruce Willis, Nick Cage started doing lots of these straight-to-video-on-demand or straight-to-DVD movies. And I'd see him on the cover, but I'd never actually go and see those movies because he's in them. But when he is in them and does appear, hey, I'm all all on board, Morgan. Okay, fair
1: fair enough, fair enough.
0: So that's kind of the end of where I stand. I guess is it the best execution of this idea – Look, it's kinda of funny, right? Because both films are about people that come back to Earth a thousand years later. I don't actually think this film is really about that. Especially like it's I guess that's like one of five things that define this movie. Would you agree? No, if we were saying
1: is this the best movie about someone who comes back to Earth thousands of well, not thousands of years later, but later. But you're right, that's not what it that's not what it's about, is it?
0: No, I mean, I guess the only thing you'd say is that he yearns for an old version of Earth that he vaguely remembers when he hangs out his little cabin in the woods. But he uh, you, you could, could be yearning about that elsewhere as well. So uh, I don't think the film hangs, is dependent on that premise, but it does sort of work and part and parcel as one of the many concepts of this movie.
1: He, he just sits around yearning for a bygone time of what, like the 1970s?
0: Yeah, no, I think it's actually the stadium he goes to, well, the stadium where he finds a baseball or whatever is 20, it was the oh, it, Gridiron NFL Grand Final, uh, the Super Bowl of 2017?
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess just because he was listening to the Led Zeppelin song or "Nights in White Satin or whatever it was. I thought, oh. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe culturally that's what he's after. But, yeah, no, he yearns for 2017, huh? Apparently so. Right.
0: Um, any final thoughts on that before we move on to After Earth?
1: Uh, um, no, I mean, does he yearn for Brexit? Did he yearn for Trump? <laughs> you know, did he yearn for a, for a homelessness crisis?
0: Isn't the nature of yearning <laughs> that you always yearn for what you conveniently remember as being the best thing? Totally. Like, for example, everyone yearns for, you know, the good times of their childhood, good times of their teenage years or university, but they kind of forget, like, the crappy times, like having no money, being bullied. You know, lacking confidence. Like everyone forgets that stuff.
1: Ah, oh, totally, totally. I yearn for the nineties. Oh, god, I love the nineties. Um, no, I think, uh, I think, I think we've done. I think we've done us talking about oblivion and some justice. All right, let's let's uh, let's move on and talk about the cheese I was eating some more.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to After Earth. Uh, let's switch lanes, switch gears. Um, and did this film grind your gears, Gabe? It sounds like it did. I, okay, but, but, but And did do a better version of the same concept than Oblivion.
1: I, I, I just want to be a little careful here. I like Will Smith a lot, right? The dude is like a charisma machine, right? Like Will Smith is awesome, great in a lot of movies, a, a bona fide movie star, right? Like I don't want it to seem like we're just going to be mean to Will Smith.
0: Agreed. I love Will Smith too.
1: Men in Black, Bad Boys, ID4, you know, he can do.
0: But you're raising the exact problem with this movie, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Like, okay, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. I also like M. Night Shyamalan, man. You know, Sixth Sense, fucking excellent. Unbreakable, real good. Glass, I liked it a lot. So, you know, just want to be upfront and say this is not just – you know, I, it brings me no great pleasure to say the things about these guys that I'm about to say. Just want that to be clear. <laughs> no pleasure. Go for it. What the fuck were they thinking? This movie is fucking awful. Oh, I don't think I've seen a movie quite this bad for some time that had the sort of level of talent, not including Jaden Smith because that fucking kid has no talent as an actor, that's just pissed away and wasted. God, he's really bad. I've found it difficult to get through. Just, it's bad. This is a bad movie.
0: This film was a turkey.
1: There's, there's not even stuff that you go like, you know me, Ben. I like some shitty movies, man. I will sit through anything and I'll point at some stuff in some movies that people don't like and be like, hey, but, you know, some actor in there somewhere is making some big choice and doing something interesting or there was a scene, the movie might not have been great, but, man, how about just that one little memorable moment? This does not have any of that.
0: <laughs> I was watching Fate of the Furious with my kids this afternoon. And there's a great scene that I saw again, which I remember seeing at the movies at the time. And I didn't really enjoy Fate of the Furious, the eighth film in the Fast and Furious franchise. But there's a great scene where Jason Statham does a serious fight scene wearing a baby Bjorn with a baby in it. Oh, that's awesome. Ah, oh, totally. It's quite awesome. And so I can see that movie and go, that is a great moment. Why hasn't anyone done that before? Because it is the worst situation to be in. He said sort a of fight, not only save himself, but save the baby. So if he gets punched in the guts, the baby gets killed. Like, well,
1: Ben, Ben, to be fair, hard target, oh, not hard target, uh, hard boiled did it better many years before. But
0: really? What did they have before Baby Beyond? Like a swaddling?
1: Like, I don't know. So like a Fat's got the baby on him and it pisses on him.
0: Ah, okay. So it's been done before. Anyway, point being, you can still find pleasure in the, Unpleasurable. Totally. Totally. Exactly.
1: Exactly. There was no pleasure to be got from this. I mean I mean let's start with what you mentioned before. You've got a lead actor with some megastar wattage, right? Like and the central premise of this movie is that if aliens have invaded or whatever and they smell fear. And the way that you fight them is you have no fear. But the way that this movie says the best way to dramatise someone having no fear is by making them fucking comatose. Like just making them have zero personality, speak at this even, even, even what? Even even tone of voice. And it just sucks the life
0: out of it. It is such a mistake on two levels Actually, three levels. <laughs> the con- the concept means that you're potentially going to have people that are lacking vitality on screen. Ugh. You then actually assign the person who's the best at being uncharismatic to the lead star role. And you then cast one of the most charismatic stars of the last 20 years, someone who has just blazing wattage on screen, right, that people go and see in anything – because he just brings so much energy. He's a totally. bona fide star, right? Totally. Absolute movie star. And he's a movie star for being incredibly charismatic. He pops off the screen. And so the third mistake they make is then I- I'd say that they cast him, but he actually it was his idea, which is even more bizarre. He is then the lead actor in this movie. Like it is just tripling down on a mistake on a mistake on a mistake and – You're right, it just kills the movie dead. Every
1: time they cut back to him in his crass spaceship with his broken legs and he's just talking in that monotone thing telling his stupid son to stay calm. Oh, God, I just wanted his character to die. I hope that the point of the movie in the end would be the opposite of what it is and basically be the Captain Marvel thing, which is no, in the end it's fine to have emotions Like, hey, you know, cry a little, laugh, live. No, in the end, Jaden Smith, he conquers fear and becomes just as boring as his stupid-ass dad.
0: Gabe, you're 100% right. I didn't even think of that connection with Captain Marvel, but for listeners who haven't re-watched Marvel recently, Captain Marvel, that's exactly what happens. Like, the whole film, she's being told by her mentor figure Jude Law to contain herself, to restrain herself to try and suppress her emotions because that is progress to be a warrior. And in the end she discovers actually it's her emotions that empower, empower her and the only reason she was being told to contain herself was because they actually feared her becoming powerful by tapping into her emotional core. Totally. That would have at least been a journey and this film actually exactly. rewards boredom. like re- Yeah, yeah, totally. It's terrible.
1: I'm not saying this needed to end with Jaden Smith fighting some monsters while no doubt... I'm Just a Girl Blast. Not necessary, but, I mean, (laughs) you know, like, could... Wouldn't it have been more interesting if the monsters smelled boredom and you had to walk around with a smile on your face? Like, fuck. <laughs> like,
0: and Jack Black's the main character.
1: Yeah, well, so. I'd watch the shit out of that. I mean, and I know Jaden is something of a, I don't know, is he like a Twitter celebrity with those stupid tweets he would write? Um,
0: Social media celebrity, yeah. So Whatever,
1: yeah. yeah. And he, I guess he was okay in that Karate Kid remake, reboot thing. Oh, but... He's just bad in this. He's just bad in it. He's not He's not a good actor. He looks like he kind of doesn't want to be there.
0: Yeah, you're right. I agree. He's not a good actor at all. Like, he's he's a, he's a poor actor, unfortunately. Um, he's also the, a poor actor to have in this particular character, like a double whammy. Like, he comes across as whiny, mm. and I don't think that's the sort of person you want to have in this role. You want to have someone who's actually scared, not whiny. He comes across as petulant and Never a great trait in a hero of a movie, right? Like, the closest I can think of is maybe that scene where Luke Skywalker in uh, Star Wars talks about, um, but I want to go, I want to go. You know, he wants to leave the planet and join the resistance. But I was going into Tashi Station to pick up some power
1: converters. Yeah, but at least he wants to do something there. In this Jane's like, I don't want to do that. Yeah, that's
0: That's true. That's true. true." You know what, Gabe? You mentioned that example before of, what Jaden could have done, right, in terms of basically convincing his father his father's wrong and you actually can succeed with fear, is that they missed a beat because you said before that by trying to avoid fear, he becomes comatose. But it doesn't make sense because there are plenty of examples. I'm thinking of a classic film, one of our, our first actually twin movie episode, Armageddon, Michael Bay's Armageddon, Right. Mm-hmm. Think of those characters, right? Half those guys are fearless, mm-hmm. but they're funny. Good times. Oh, tidally. Tidally. Like there they are, they're drilling away on this meteor flying at a billion kilometres per hour towards Earth, right? They don't have enough air, they're going to die, but they're characters, they're charismatic. And and a couple of them are actually fearless. And the reason they're fearless is because they have an energy of positivity where rather than being scared, they express it as humour. Like there is a way that could have actually worked as a story where perhaps someone, perhaps is overcompensates so much, they're always mucking around and people think that they're just too much of a clown. But no, that's the way they try and avoid being scared, opposed to just being absent of every single emotion, including fear.
1: And they... This movie pitches that as something that's aspirational. But for most of the movie, his dad just comes across as an abusive jerk, like as an emotionally distant father who yells at his son. It's like who wants to aspire to that? You know, that's every British dad from the 1970s. Like fuck that. You know? <laughs> like
0: <laughs> bit close to the bone there, Gabe.
1: <laughs> uh, it just seems like I just don't get what like like just one day Jaden Smith want to grow up to be a fuckwit like his dad, you know,
0: like. Totally. And also you can tell how um, unappealing uh, Will Smith's character is in the movie because everyone's just scared of him. No one actually reveres him in a way that they revere, for example, think of um, Emily Blunt in Edge of Tomorrow, right? Sure. Lived, Lived I repeat, right? She's a legend.
1: Yeah, the full metal bitch.
0: Yeah, exactly. There are posters of her. She's a cool weapon. Yeah. Like she's fearless in those fights because she knows what she's doing, what's going to happen in the future. But people revere and respect her. Like she's a legend. No one seems to really kind of hold Will Smith's character in high regard. They just seem to be intimidating by him because he seems to be just really rude because he's done this thing where he's contained his emotions so much. Um, Not, again, a really aspirational – protagonist or second protagonist in a movie.
1: No, and it's weird as well because it kind of doesn't make sense. Can the monsters, the aliens not see sleeping people? Like if you're just asleep, can they not see you? You're not afraid when you're asleep unless you're having a real bad nightmare, a nightmare about, where are you watching this fucking movie? Um, (laughs) um, But, like, their thing, oh, they, they smell fear. Like, I feel like within three and a half weeks I'd have drugs that you just inject yourself with and you're not afraid anymore, like just smack. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like <that. laughs> or, or a lot of cocaine. Like, oh, really? <laughs> like, you know, oh, fuck, man. Like what's the opposite of fear? You know, you just be super charged. I'm going to fuck up all these monsters here. Let's fucking do it. <laughs> you know? And then you well, could do it with a little bit of verve and charisma or like too much verve and maybe, you know, but at least you'd be smiling and sweating.
0: Well, actually, I haven't seen Fearless by Peter Weir, that movie about, I think it's Jeff Bridges who survives a plane crash. But as I recall, wasn't the concept that basically when someone survives a close encounter with death and they don't have any fear because they feel like they've already been there. They've been to the very edge, the brink of survival. And so they realise, you know what? It wasn't so bad. So I'm fearless going forward. Yeah. It's kind of the same, right? Like, for example, take out Jaden Smith from this movie. Just have Will Smith. And it's about a guy who basically almost died, didn't die, and he lost his family though, so he has nothing else to live for. So then he sort of essentially seeks vengeance against his aliens because what else does he have to live for? He's not scared of dying. In fact, in some ways, a bit like uh, I mentioned earlier, Maximus from Gladiator, if he dies, it'll actually bring him closer to his family. In fact, as I talk out loud about this, it's kind of similar to Russell Crowe's character, right? He's got nothing left, so he doesn't mind dying if he's going to end up with his family. So he basically gives it his all. He's fearless.
1: Yeah, totally. Oh, God. Half of the time I kept expecting it to turn out that Will Smith had died in the initial plane crash and he was just a ghost talking to his son or something.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, that would have been actually more interesting because <laughs> right. that would have been a case of basically Jaden Smith realising that he doesn't need his dad and then perhaps once he achieves his goal, dad just v- disappears. You know the other
1: really dumb thing? Uh, this is actually a comment on me and maybe- I'd miss this because I'd got up to fetch my uh, large packet of cheese. But for the first, like, 25 minutes, oh, no, uh, for the period of the film after they had just crashed on the planet, I was like, wait, is this a movie where he's just going to fight baboons? What's going on here? I was like, wait, is this set on Earth? (laughs) And I was like, you dumbass, you dumbass. It's called... I couldn't even figure out if it was set on Earth or so It's, in, so the, it's st- in the title, stupid. <laughs> yeah. Well, and look, maybe maybe people who love this movie out there will be like, "Hey, look at this! Look at this! Look at this!" Idiot. He was too busy and cheese to figure out the most basic bits of this plot. Uh, no. <laughs> no.
0: Well, I guess back to that whole issue: is this the best execution of that premise? I think it's actually a similar answer to Oblivion, right? In that, not really, because when they land back on Earth, there's no connection. Like the alien who comes with them wasn't even on Earth. Like, and not much has changed, really. Like, the baboons are a bit savage.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. Wait, so the the alien's in some stupid-looking cocoon on the plane, right? Yeah, exactly. So they accidentally just let the alien go free, and then it turns out that he accidentally stumbles upon the alien later. Exactly. Ugh, why... So I might have missed some in, in very important bit of world building in this, but why can they not live on Earth again?
0: Uh, I can't recall either. I was thinking of you eating cheese at the time, so I was distracted.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there must be some reason, but he can just walk around. It's not like he needs a mask or something. Maybe baboons and really big birds took it over.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing is that I guess there was the big bird, the baboons and the leech, and otherwise that was it. I mean, I yeah, I can't even recall of the film um, – It was a blur. Uh,
1: just I'd forgotten about it until right this second, but the leech bit is a definite high point of the movie. Watching Jaden Smith with his face all, you know, blown up and his eyes all swollen and and stuff as he tries to inject himself in the heart, I mean, at least he's funny looking, (laughs) you know. But they also play this really, really dud bit, which is he finds himself... Jaden Smith crashes on Earth and basically the plot is he's got to travel from like A to B to the tail of the plane to find some sort of trance ponder or something or other, whatever. And halfway there he gets picked up by a really big bird. Apparently in the preceding time baboons have stayed mostly the same but birds have now got huge. Uh, explain that one.
0: Yeah, it makes no sense, yeah.
1: But the giant bird takes him to its nest where then the nest is attacked by a whole pack of tigers or sort of more prehistoric-looking tiger, whatever, that eat the baby birds. You should never, ever in a movie introduce cute baby birds and then kill them. (laughs) Who the fuck wants to see that? It's terrible. It's a really poor choice. It's like this is a movie ostensibly for kids or something, kids and idiots. Who wants to see these sweet little birds, chirpy birds, get
0: eaten? No one. No. And also, then, then that bird actually rescues and saves Jaden to its own detriment and dies implicitly because it's now taking Jaden on as its surrogate child. Even though Jaden didn't save the baby birds from being killed, it didn't actually really help out much at all.
1: No, I, I thought he was going to save the birds. Like, picture this. This would be a better version. The bird drops him in its giant bird egg nest And it's like, I'm going to feed you to my chicks. Somehow it's going to do this. The chicks are tiny and Jaden's pretty big, but whatever. It's going to chew him up a lot and spit him into their mouths. But then the the saber-toothed tigers attack. Jaden fights them off. He saves the birds and then the big bird feeds him like the chicks by like spitting food into his mouth. I'd like that. I'd watch that. That sounds fun.
0: No, the same film without him being fed the chicks, just being saved by the bird makes more sense because he saved the bird. It-
1: yes, yes, but my point is, I'd like to see him fed by the bird. <laughs> That's the bit I'm after.
0: That's a hell of a visual. Yeah, you know.
1: Again, at least it would inject the movie with a bit of bit of verve, you know. Um, and then the other thing this movie does is, they have a very linear. He's got to get from A to B, and along the way, he has all of these sort of flashbacks of his previous life on every. Fucking planet in one of these tired movies is called something prime. Nova prime. Oh, Nova prime. You know, Um, (laughs) uh, it's so devoid of any kind of interest or drama because who cares? He he gets like visited by his like hallucinogenic version of his, is it his sister?
0: It's his sister and his mum. Yeah.
1: Right. Who gives a shit? Like it teaches him nothing. Nothing happens from it. You just feel sad. For Zoe Kravitz and Sophie Okonedo, who are who are better than this,
0: you know? Oh, so much better! And also, by the way, too, the whole motivation where Will Smith's character Cipher Rage has rage because he felt his son Jaden didn't actually try and save his sister—it's just ridiculous. Like in the movie, Zoe Kravitz kind of puts him in a little shell, a little plastic aquarium to keep him safe to try and defend him while she tries to kill the alien and she fails, unfortunately, and dies. But it's entirely reasonable and everyone would do the same thing in that there's no need for both of them to die and she says, well, I'll try and save you, but, you know, you'd be safe. Yet for some unknown reason, this hard-ass Will Smith resents his son for not dying as well and he even says, I would have died. Like, you did you want me to die as well? Like, Jason Smith is entirely reasonable, even though he's petulant, about what he did and yet Will Smith thinks that's unreasonable.
1: Yeah, it's not even played in a – oddly I watched um, uh, 28 Weeks Later a few days before and that starts really interestingly with Robert Carlyle's character sort of making this choice where he abandons his wife in the house and then he feels guilt about that. He thinks she's been bit by the zombies or – rage-infected lunatics or whatever. Um, and at least you feel like he did a thing that he feels guilt over. In this, it's like, you're right. Like, there's no moral complexity to it. Will Smith is entirely just an asshole, And I, you just don't, like, maybe he just doesn't like his son. Maybe he knows what we know, that this whole thing is a fool's errand and they would have all been better off if they were dead.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh man, oh man. All right. On that okay, note. Hold on, hold on. And what you, you, about these more <laughs> stupid ass
1: names? Kitai oh. Rage. So no, we, we rage. have
0: awards for that. Let's say for the oh, awards. Okay. You're stepping All right. on the awards. Alright, alright. All right. Any uh final comments before we move to trivia?
1: Um no, I mean I wish there was something nice I could say about it. I I truly do. I wish there was something I could say, you know, the photography is not interesting. The art direction is interesting. It's not particularly well cut. The score is not memorable. The performances are forgettable. Like, oh, man, it's just kind of sad. Like, I don't, I feel bad. (laughs) You know what I mean? I feel bad.
0: Look, I agree. There are very few elements of this film that you could praise. I can't think of one of them off the top of my head. And I think that's why this film scored so badly with the reviews. Uh, it actually did okay at the box office, which I think is just a testament to the power of Will Smith, which, which makes you wonder, had he actually been himself and charismatic, how much better it might have done. But, yeah, I, I agree. All right, let's jump to uh, trivia and some behind-the-scenes making of stuff. Uh, let's start with casting what have shoulda, couldas. Okay. Uh, get this. In uh, Let's start with Oblivion. In casting the lead role of Julia opposite Cruise, the producers considered five actresses. All right? Okay. Jessica Chastain. Too tall. Olivia Wilde. <laughs> Too tall. Britt Marling and Numi Rapace before settling on Olga Korolenko. But they actually- Signed Chastain Amp. She was in by January 2012. She was in talks and ready to go, but then she did Zero Dark Thirty with Captain Bigelow and had to pull out. Yeah, chose wisely. Chose wisely. Fair call. Fair call. Interesting. What do you think as alternative choices though? Like, look, I think Olga Kirilenko is actually really good in this movie, but I actually think most of those other actors, maybe not Nimir Pace, but. Jessica Chastain would have been great, although it would have looked too similar, I think, visually to Andrea Risenborough. Uh, Living Wild is very good. Um, Britt Marling is fantastic, an indie actor. Mm. Would you prefer to see any of those actors instead of Our Mate Olga?
1: Um, having just watched um, that Britt Marling movie about where she plays the cult leader, I'd, uh, I'd have liked to have seen her in it.
0: Yeah, I think she's really good. Um, she's very nuanced, uh, and yeah, maybe visually too similar again to the other character. But yeah, she's good. Okay, let's jump on to uh, Victoria, played by Andrea Riseborough. So they initially considered Hayley Atwell, Diana Kruger, and Kate Beckinsdale. Oh yeah,
1: okay. Uh, nah. I think I think Andrea Riseborough is really great
0: in this. I think she's fantastic. Yeah, I I think she's. I think it's actually one of her best on-screen performances. And she, I think, is the heart of the movie man, in respect. So I think she's fantastic. I prefer her than those three pre- previously named actors. All right. Yeah, definitely. Uh, okay, up to Spot the Aussie. Did you spot any? Huh? huh?
1: Well, I guess Zoe Bell's a New Zealander.
0: Yeah, so I had that down as a New Zealander. So a bit of a cheat there.
1: Does, it, does that count a little bit?
0: <laughs> a little bit. I'd hate to hear that. Um, after Earth... Lincoln Lewis plays a running cadet. For our American listeners, Lincoln Lewis was a kind of reasonably well-known soap star from Home and Away. And I'm assuming this was one of his first attempts to break into Hollywood. I'm going to have to interrupt you there, Ben. Lincoln Lewis is also the son of the great man, the king Wally Lewis, one of the greatest rugby league players to ever play the greatest game of all.
1: Killian. Killian. Yeah, I to be honest, can you even I didn't really I didn't even really know if I spotted him. Did, did he have a line?
0: Yeah, I don't think so. I cheated by actually looking at IMDB. <laughs>
1: yeah, right. Um Yeah. Well, it didn't work out too good for him, did it?
0: No, it did not. <laughs> um No All right, let's jump to Big Trouble and Little Production. So I mentioned all of the interesting stories in relation to the filming and stuff. Um, Did you realise that scene with Tom Cruise set on a cliff was actually filmed for real? You know, he sort of sits on the very edge of an enormous cliff that was actually filmed for real in Iceland.
1: These days, if you told me, did you realise that Tom Cruise actually travelled into the future to make this movie, I'd be like, yeah, that, that checks out.
0: Well, He's actually going to do a movie set in space in the future, like actually filming in space with Doug Liman, of all people, who's notorious for like, you know, not making the smoothest production. Yeah, right. So he with NASA and uh, Elon Musk is going to do a film in space. So I guess anything's possible. (laughs) Elon Musk is such a chode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Uh, After Earth. So apparently Will Smith was responsible for much of the movie's direction in that he actually directed Jaden Smith instead of Ed Knight Shumalan. So Ed Knight took care of the blocking, the composition of shots, placement of the camera, and the visual aspects of the film, like the colour and design. But Father Smith actually did all of the acting because basically the film only has Jaden Smith in it for most of it. Uh, and then when the storyline and acting were both heavily criticised, uh, Shyamalan decided to take the blame. Wow.
1: That's interesting because Shia Marlon is obviously a reasonable director of kids. I mean, The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, both child Signs, you know, a bunch of kid actors in that, The Village, The Visit, I don't know.
0: But pretty hard to compete with your dad, right? I mean, when dad's basically saying, this is my idea, I'm the biggest movie star in the world, I hired you and my son's going to be in it who's never acted before, I've got this. It'd be pretty hard to push back.
1: Yeah, I don't yeah, yeah, totally. But like maybe your dad's not the best person to direct you.
0: Yeah, totally, totally. We'll get this. Apparently in a 2019 lecture at NYU's Stern School of Business, um, Shyamalan publicly disowned After Earth and these previous film, The Last Airbender from 2010, calling them quote, junk movies, unquote.
1: I uh, like how he didn't disown The Happening, which was the movie he made before Last Airbender.
0: <laughs>
1: no way, man, I'm sticking by that. I'm going to defend that till the day I die, Island said to the the Institute of Business Affairs at some university or whatever. <laughs> sure.
0: I hear you whispering, planning on stealing something. No, ma'am, we're not. Plan on murdering me in my sleep.
1: What? No. <laughs>
0: Oh, man. Um, all right, let's jump to uh, marketing, methodology, madness, and missteps. Well, again, oblivion, controlled, measured, not many stories to tell. After Earth, however, made $130 million. We'll get to that in our box office report. But had $100 million of marketing budget. But here's the thing. Shyamalan's name was notably absent from the trailers, commercials, and all marketing signage and posters. So they went for the whole big focus on Will and Jaden and for the first time ever just dropped his name and decided that they wanted to focus on the story and the actors, which I guess was a bad sign given how badly his films had really done the preceding years.
1: Yeah, totally. So surely that's because I bet they sold The Happening right off his name. Totally, yeah. The new, you know, spooky movie from Master of Suspense, M. Night, Shyamalan, and then... Whey, Look out.
0: What? No.
1: It's not surprising, really. No, it's not. Also, it's not his genre. You know, it's not like you go, oh, yes, I did enjoy The Sixth Sense. I will like a science fiction movie from the same guy about,
0: you know, it's sort of a disconnect there, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I agree. Yep. All right. Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, no, Box Office. Box Office
1: first. Uh, whichever you like.
0: <laughs> no, let's go to Box Office first. Okay. Have a guess. Which movie was the Box Office champ? Well, you surprised me
1: before when you mentioned Arthur Earth did not bad, money. I still hope Oblivion made more
0: money than After Earth. Did it? Oblivion, a budget of 120 million dollars, did 89 domestically in the states plus 197 internationally for a worldwide total of 286 million. So not great given that you normally have to make three times your budget at the box office to break even at the cinema at least. After Earth Hundred and thirty million budget, so ten million bucks more, did only sixty million domestically, but did a hundred and eighty three internationally for a grand total of two hundred and forty four million dollars. So two hundred forty-four million for after earth versus two hundred eighty-six for oblivion. Wow. <laughs> so wasn't punished. All right. Do you reckon uh Oblivion spoilt the goods for After Earth? I don't think so, because I think Will Smith and Tom Cruise are different. Vehicles. I don't think the films were probably pitched to be as similar. What do you think?
1: I don't think so. I mean, quite a lot of sci-fi movies came out in 2013, uh, and yeah, I don't think you'd look at these and say those premises are quite as similar as you know some of the much more identically themed twin movies like you know Armageddon and Deep Impact. So I think, I think, I think they were you know separate enough that. You wouldn't feel like your lunch got et.
0: (laughs) All right, let's see then how the fans responded. So, Rotten Tomatoes, have a guess first. Let's start with critics. Do you think Oblivion pipped After Earth?
1: (laughs) Oh, I mean, surely the After Earth reviews were worth scathing,
0: surely. Oblivion, 53% on the tomato meter versus After Earth, which only has 11%. It's 11% too many. Who, who are these people? <laughs> okay, how about the fans, the audience? What do you think? Which one came out on top?
1: I reckon the audience score for Oblivion would be higher than
0: the critics' score
1: because the critics' score sent a little low to me.
0: Well, Oblivion did 61% with audiences and After Earth did 36%. Eh, nice. I've got to say, I'm really disappointed with those scores for Oblivion. As a film that's one of my favourites, 53% with critics and 61% with audiences. Um, yeah, not happy, Jan. Not happy. All right, let's go to the awards. I've forgotten Gabe. Are we doing drum rolling? I always forget this. Drum roll, no drum roll. Uh, I don't know. It's sort of like dealer's choice. All right. Sam, awesome sound designer, Sam. If you feel like whacking in some drum roll. Do it here, otherwise we'll just fly <laughs> quietly into the night. Yeah, that's right. If not, that's fine. We'll just move on. <laughs> like, whatever. <laughs> okay. Let's say our best title. Oblivion. Yeah, I agree.
1: After Earth's not bad, though.
0: I mean, After Earth says what it says it is on the tin. Uh, I think they're both I, – I, I'm a bit biased because I like the film Oblivion. Um, yeah, I mean, After Earth, I guess if it was a good film, actually could be a good title. Interestingly, Universal that made Oblivion once considered using the film's alternative title, Horizons, before changing their mind back to the original.
1: I mean, I guess the only ding you'd have with Oblivion is it's, it's vague. Like, you know, what is it? Is it got, has it got anything to do with living in Oblivion, that 90s indie movie about Steve Buscemi as an independent filmmaker? Who's to say until I watch it?
0: <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, all right. Do you want to give it to After Earth?
1: No, I want to give it to Oblivion. I don't want to give shit to After Earth.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Oblivion wins it. Okay, best poster. Can you describe to our listeners uh, each of these posters on IMDb?
1: Okay, so the Oblivion poster is a large bridge. Is that the – it's not the Golden Gate. No, some American bridge because they're in – they're in New York, right? Some am the New York Bridge, the bridge that goes to Jersey, I don't know. New York, some yeah. Some bridge. And it's all twisted and twisted and broken and Tom Cruise is walking along it in his little dapper spacesuit. And then the After Earth poster is Will Smith's giant head and then Jaden Smith's giant head. And it gives you no indication of anything that it's about two humongous headed men.
0: So it is pretty clear which film is the winner, right?
1: <laughs> oh, Yeah. Yeah, that, that giant head poster is no good.
0: Yeah, it's terrible. It gives you no sense as to what the movie's about at all.
1: Well, it does, it does say danger is real and fear is a choice.
0: Yeah, and Will Smith looks very unhappy, so I guess you get the idea that he's serious.
1: Yeah. And that's some victim-blaming bullshit.
0: <laughs> all right, Oblivion wins. Uh, the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after American actors Billy Bob and Ben Affleck, who jumped from indie films into the Hollywood big time. Who got their big break in these twin movies, starting with Oblivion?
1: Well, Andrea Riseborough, she'd sort of just been doing quite well regarded but certainly not huge budgeted English movies, you know, Never Let Me Go, Shadow Dancer, Madonna's movie, W.E. <laughs> um, so, you know. She, she could be up for
0: it, certainly. Um, yeah, up for the award is what you're saying. Uh, yeah. Yep, I snap, I agree with that one. Uh, I think she kind of basically blew into the massive mainstream with this film. I mean, this is a huge movie to be in. Playing Tom Cruise's love interest, I mean, that's a big break. How about After Earth? No. Okay. You don't want to say it, but the nominee clearly is Jaden Smith. He have no acting credits at all.
1: No, no, he'd been in Karate Kid, dude.
0: Oh yeah, okay. All right, yeah. Or the
1: Karate Kid.
0: Okay. All right. So I guess Andre gets it.
1: Oh yeah, let's give it to her. Let's give it to her.
0: Okay. Moving on. The Before They Were Famous Award or the Blink and You'll Miss Them Award. So, starting with Oblivion. It's pretty hard. It's a small cast. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's right. We've still got to wait to find out if um either of the twin girls who play Julia's daughter goes on to bigger and better things. So we'll have to come back in 10 years and revisit this episode and then cut something in right here from the future.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to basically scratch Oblivion. How about After Earth? I was thinking Zoe Kravitz playing Jaden's sister. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Zoe, you kicked on the bigger things since, but. Don't turn your back on the great award from the Twin Movies podcast. That is the Before The Were Famous Award. Okie doke. Let's jump to the Tommy Lee Jones Show Stiller Award, named after Tommy Lee in a supporting role in The Fugitive. Gabe, who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role, starting with Oblivion?
1: Melissa Leo? I mean, it's not poorly written. I guess comparatively, it's small. It's pretty good.
0: Yeah, I guess so. I also thought Olga... Mm-hmm. Mm. role wasn't that substantial. But Melissa Leo, I think you're probably right on that one. Maybe. After Maybe. Earth, I had Sophie Onconito. I thought she's barely in the movie, but I thought she actually brought a bit of emotional resonance to the movie. I actually believe that she was the mother. Oh, yeah. I mean, hard thing to do given how little she had.
1: Definitely one of those actresses who is better than the movie she is in. That is for sure. Uh, I didn't mind the bloke who played the guy who talks to Jaden in the bug cocoon room on the spaceship. I thought he was all right. I don't know his name. I don't know the name of his character. He's just that bloke in the bug room who
0: talks to him. Whatever. (laughs) I can't recall him. Um, I'm thinking Melissa Leo. What do you think?
1: Let's let's give it to Melissa Leo. She's good value.
0: Done. All right, let's kick on to the Mickey Rourke Award, named in honour of the troubled actor who squandered his chance to kick on with bigger roles, who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in these films, starting with Oblivion?
1: I don't know. I think Tom Cruise, Morgan Freeman, Olga Kurylenko, Andre Risborough, Nikolai costa Wildu, Melissa Leo and Zoe Bell are all doing reasonably well. So,
0: Yeah, I've got to say I would have thought that Andrea Risborough would have kicked on more, to be honest. I'm surprised that having starters as a love interest in Tom Cruise movie, she has got a bit of autonomy and a lot of on-screen time she didn't actually appear in more movies, like a Marvel movie, more big budget movies. So maybe she's made these choices because apparently when she was asked about her worst job ever in a late 2016 interview, so basically three years after the movie, she stated either shredding duck in a Chinese restaurant or oblivion.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Ow. Damn. Ouch. Damn. Ouch. I wonder what she hated I'm, about it. But
0: Yeah, I'm not sure.
1: I mean, but you're right. I mean, she did. You know, she was in Birdman, and then she did Nocturnal Animals, and she's in Death of Stalin. But yeah, she's not doing any more sort of hundred mil million dollar million dollar movies.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, after Earth, I guess you'd say Jaden. I mean, yeah. Fuck yeah. Let's give him this loser award, <laughs> the Mickey Rourke award. All right, Jaden. Yeah. You can add this to your other social media accolades. Let's jump to the Winner Winner Chicken Dinner Award. Um, Who came out on top in each of these movies? Jaden Smith's
1: going to have me killed,
0: isn't he? Um, Who came out on top? I had, for Oblivion, I had M83, the band. Oh, nice. They did the soundtrack and the director, Joseph Kosinski.
1: Nice. Yeah, let's give it to M83. All right. No one came out on top of After Earth, did they? I mean, that's just uh
0: a... Maybe Gary Witter. I mean, he kicked on to do Rogue... One, the Star Wars spin-off movie after this. So I guess this was between Book of Eli and Rogue One, so I guess he was able to leverage the opportunity. But this film is not a great reflection on his screenwriting expertise.
1: No, no, I think you're absolutely right. He comes out on top if he managed to dodge blame for this. Like if he <laughs> – and like he, he may well be completely blameless and good on him, but so long as he didn't get stuck holding that, you know, bloody giant explosive turd – <laughs> um when it went off, it didn't spray him with shit. Good on him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, uh, M83, uh, put away those Euro awards because the winner winner chicken dinner award is coming your way. All right, uh, Best Dialogue Award. I don't feel we're going to have much here. Favourite quote. Well, I mentioned one earlier for Oblivion, which is Sally's line played by Melissa Leo, are you an effective team? That to me, just because it's like a... It's kind of like a bit of an earworm, isn't it? It gets in your brain and you can't forget about it. So that's my quote for Oblivion. What have you got?
1: Uh, None. As much as I admire parts of this, it's certainly no bits where you're like, that line ruled or, wow, that's going to stick with me forever, ever, ever.
0: (laughs) Um, How about After Earth?
1: Uh, Surely there's some lines that were so, so sort of, I mean, take a knee, you said before, take a knee doesn't work. Why do you think take a knee doesn't work?
0: I mean, I think it actually works in the sense that actually it's a recurring theme. I think it's like a dumb choice as a way for someone to ground themselves. Um, I think it's meant to be a bit like meditation, right? Like center yourself, you know, breathe in, um, stop panicking. It's just weird because a knee is often a thing you often think about as being a subservient physical gesture which is odd. So, look, I'm giving it to Oblivion for a You an Effective Team?
1: Yeah, fair, fair.
0: All right, moving on to the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scene Reward. Oblivion, any chewers? I don't think so.
1: I mean, Melissa, she's doing, she's doing a, a slight chew, I guess.
0: Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, okay, I'll put her down as a reluctant nominee. Minor chew? After, after Earth. I'd actually say Will Smith playing Cypher Rage in that he's doing a reverse chew. Oh, I like it. <laughs> What's a reverse chew? Is he vomiting? No, that
1: also requires some sort of, you know, uh, effort. Um,
0: Is he sucking? It's like sucking a lollipop.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay, there you go. He's sucking so hard.
0: <laughs> All right, so Will Smith gets bit after Earth. Good one. All right. Uh, the Taking a Paycheck Award, which speaks for itself. Oblivion. What do you think, Morgan Freeman or Nikolajah Costa-Waldu? Nah, nah, Nikolajah or,
1: or Nico, as we call him. <laughs> he hey, liked the job. Morgan Freeman is the king of taking paychecks. And good on him. Get paid, Morgan. Get paid.
0: All right. Morgan's going to get paid. Have it after Earth. M-Knight? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I hadn't thought of him. I reckon M-Knight takes it because, the, I mean, he said it himself, right? He took these films opportunities. His own career had crashed. He needed a paycheck. Yep. He gets it. All right. The Steven Toblowski Award, aka Hey, it's That Guy, named after the iconic supporting actor Steven Toblowski, who played Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. Okay? Yeah. Hey, which actor triggered? Hey, it's that guy when he or she appeared on screen.
1: Oh, it's a bit hard in Oblivion with so few actors. I mean, Zoe Bell a little bit, like, you know, oh. when she turns up and stuff, you're like, hey, look, it's Zoe Bell.
0: Oh, Nico, Mr Game of Thrones must be a contender, right? Nah. Eh. yeah, eh. Well, speaking of, uh, speaking of Game of Thrones, how about an after-earth Norwegian actor, Christopher Hivju? Oh, yeah. He's the guy that with the red beard and red hair who played Tormund. In Game of Thrones.
1: Oh, yeah. He's the one who wants to bang Brienne, right? Gave her the old sex eye.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's him.
1: And they never capitalised enough on that.
0: I I think he's been. I think, I mean, he's so recognisable, but you don't know actually who he is. So there's him. There's a guy called uh, Glenn Morshauer who plays Commander Velen. He's been in Bloodline, Transformers, 24. He's a bald, grey guy, you know, always plays a cop. Um
1: I can't believe Tormund and Brienne didn't get it on. What a missed opportunity. I mean, people hammer the last season of the Game of Thrones, but that truly is the is the is the one that just never made sense to me. Let's give it to him. I love that guy.
0: All right, so it's basically a pity award.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. His name was Tormund Giants and he never got to chop the giant lady. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. The Dilroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. Uh I had Andrea Risenborough Uh for Oblivion. How about you?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. I like seeing her and stuff. Uh, uh, I mean, Tom Cruise isn't uh, cast often enough. (laughs) (laughs) We only get like one TC movie a year.
0: (laughs) How about After Earth? Any contenders there?
1: I mean, Sophie Oconito is great. Zoe Kravitz is great.
0: I'd say Sophie's fantastic and isn't cast enough in films, although she's uh, done a lot of TV. But I'd love to see her more on on the big screen.
1: Yeah, fair enough.
0: Uh, But I'm coming to come back to Andrea, I think, for this one.
1: Okay, give it to her.
0: Okay. Uh, Oh, we're up to the Memphis Reigns Award. I've been very excited about this award for potentially months because the winner of this award, to me, is a classic case, a deserving winner. Because uh, this award is named after the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in sixty seconds, so what could possibly top Memphis Reigns? Before we get to After Earth, are you wait? Whoa,
1: are you suggesting there's a name in this that tops Memphis Reigns?
0: <laughs> it's got to be in the conversation as up there as a contender. Do you? Do we change the name of this
1: award from this point on? Because Ooh. you feel it's been topped. Oh, okay. Do I have to be reminded of this execrable piece of crap every time? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's start with Oblivion. Uh, I don't think there were any weird names there, really, were there? Jack. Yep. Um, the only interesting thing is that he did play Jack Harper and Jack Reacher in a short period between two different films. And also, his wife's name, Julia, is also the name of his wife from the Mission Impossible movies. Fact.
1: Wow, good fact, good fact.
0: All right, let's say the winner of this award, I think we'll agree it's the winner, with After Earth on the count of three, the name of the character. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah, okay. One, two, three. Cipher Kitai Rage. rage. <laughs> oh, you went for
1: father <laughs> and I went for son. No, clearly Cipher Rage. is. Cipher like, Rage. Cipher. Cipher
0: Rage. It's ridiculous. It's, rage. it's It feels like the... F- not even the first draft of a screenplay. It feels like people just sort of eating cashews in a pub, drinking beers and just tossing out names for a screenplay which will eventually be rewritten re- 20 times and the placeholder name is Cypher Rage. Which part? Before someone says, before the end of the night, oh, you know what, it's too obvious.
1: But which, like, okay. Both. We'll get to the rage part calling the- but- First name, Cypher. Okay, yeah, that's that's a bold choice. Second name, Rage. Whoa, you're going for the double big name, you know. Totally. If he was just called Cypher Smith or, like, Thomas Rage. Oh, shit, yeah, Thomas yeah, Rage. Yeah.
0: Greg, Look Greg Rage. Yeah, hi. I'm, I'm Greg Rage. I'm Gregory Rage. Oh, shit, yeah. Well, I, this is my son, Ian Rage.
1: <laughs> Ian Rage. Is there anyone out there called Cypher, do you think? Like whose name is like yeah, uh, Cypher Stevenson, Cypher.
0: Well, there's a famous Cypher played by Joey Pants. What's his name? Uh, from The Matrix.
1: Yeah, but that's not even his real name. That's his like mate. That's the name he gave himself.
0: Yeah, that's his avatar name.
1: Yeah, yeah. His name's probably Ian
0: Rage.
1: <laughs> 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 I, look, I'm a big uh, fan of stupid names. So I'm all for this type of name. I don't understand why they give a character the surname Rage when you're it, the whole movie is about not having. I know Rage isn't fear or whatever, but they basically jammed all the emotions into one. Like, why, why isn't he called like Kitai
0: Calm? Yeah, exactly. I agree. Like, it, it it it's so it's silly, it's confusing, it's not clever. It's far from clever. I don't understand why they did it. Like, no. I I actually think, like I said, you are shitballing this spitballing this you're shitballing, shitballing. It. <laughs> you're spitballing this at the pub it's the first name you have as an idea you're being a bit kind of meta but it's on the nose and then someone says "I actually doesn't even work because he doesn't get cranky <laughs> he doesn't get into yeah. a rage and then someone would be
1: like oh never mind we'll call him
0: cypher cool <laughs> yeah no, they said oh no but it's ironic it's ironic you get it oh, He's, it's rage but he can't irony. get into a rage it's an internal frustration an internal rage
1: they should make a movie where monsters smell irony and then kill people.
0: <laughs> this film would have been, like, all over in the first five minutes. <laughs>
1: that, that fucker over there is being ironic. Let's kill him. They, they're laughing at the inappropriate moments in the movie Taxi Driver at the screening. Let's kill that fuck. You I'm
0: know, that's, that's a sequel pitch. It's going to be After Earth meets Signs of the Lambs with a comedian starring, someone Just, with a really dry sense of humour, who brought around. Like, like Louis C.K.? <laughs>
1: You can't talk about him there. I tell you, the the sequel pictures me sitting in a screening of any movie made in the 1970s while jerk-offs around me laugh at, you know, bits that aren't supposed to be funny because they're (laughs) fuckwits. And then one of the monsters here turns up and tears them to shreds and then I laugh at that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, keep your powder dry. We're getting to the sequels.
1: That's all right. I'm Cipher Cool, and I've got some ideas.
0: Cipher <laughs> so Cool sounds like that <laughs> fictional character on The Simpsons called Poochie. Where they go? Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: well, he did eventually go back to his own planet too. So,
0: <laughs> all right. The Memento Award name for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatched really these movies. Uh, with Oblivion, I've seen so many times. There are very few things I can't remember. I'm always struck by the really sharp motions and the brutal killing efficiency of those drones. Like, Ooh, okay, um, that, that's kind of it.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I forgot Zoe Bell was in the movie. You know, it was, it was fun. Going. Oh, and in fact, I didn't realise that n- Nickel nickel Big Nick uh, <laughs> was in it. You know, that was neat. Yeah, yep. Um, I hadn't seen After Earth, so I I didn't forget anything from that. Did I, I hope? Uh-huh. I hope to forget.
0: Okay, I think we'll just call this a dead rubber. No winners.
1: You know, I'll always have the memory of eating the cheese though,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and the smell. The smell.
1: I have a terrible sense of smell, so I don't actually. That doesn't. That doesn't exist for me.
0: You must have been in a real catch when you went home to your back to, into your bed with your wife that night.
1: Oh yeah, I was probably. What do you? What do you call? I was probably sweating, the stench of cheese. Just. Oh
0: yeah. Yuck. Also,
1: also, I've been eating oh. a lot of. Um, uh, uh, pickled peppers, um, particularly uh, Venuti brand hot peppers.
0: So you go to bed. Just in, like, like vinegar and cheese. <laughs> Covered in like, you said you were moist before. like you had back, It's pepper juice. Yeah, chest moisture. So you, <laughs> you come in like this thick sort of like film of like perspiration. <laughs> oh, nice.
1: A fine <laughs> with fuzz. Dry,
0: with dried cheese specks over your chest. Yep. Oh, and then yeah. like a drizzle of like pepper sauce.
1: Yep, yep.
0: Wow, you're a keeper.
1: No, no, the the worst thing about it is that the stink of After Earth hanged on me and that was worse than them all. So. <laughs> I'm sorry, Will Smith.
0: That lasted a week.
1: Oh, it's still going. Can't get rid of it.
0: Um, okay, let's jump on to the Die Hard Award. Uh, did this movie like Die Hard inspire a legacy of clones? I don't think so.
1: Not really. Clone sci fi movies existed before these, and movies about not feeling emotions existed before After Earth.
0: Yeah. Yep. All right. Done. Okay. It's come to that time of the podcast the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel, Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and relocated it to a sluggish cruise ship. So, Gabe, imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to Oblivion or After Earth, right? Mm -hmm. Now, we know they're both about a protagonist and his loved one who must fight for survival on a post-apocalyptic Earth that's populated with dangerous predators. So, first things first, to get this job, which film do we make a sequel to and what's our pitch to a studio executive to make it? Go.
1: Okay. Oblivion has a fairly definitive ending. I guess. I mean, the aliens could.
0: The aliens could come. Well, Tom Cruise dies, but Tom Cruise survives.
1: Yeah, so the aliens could come back, I suppose, and you know mess with Jack Fifty Two and so on. After Earth, After Earth sucked, but here just out this just a little bit, Ben. What if he did make a sequel to After Earth and it was actually then about rejecting the bullshit of the first movie?
0: Oh, so the first film was about aliens that can smell your fear. Yeah. And so basically Will Smith and Jaden have to suppress their fear and unfortunately in the movie it actually come across as being quite boring because there's no charisma. Yeah. The sequel would be something like, what, the ending of Captain Marvel where they learn to just be themselves and somehow...
1: Yeah, like they, you know, they take it back to the alien... because. They, they didn't even, you know, there's still a whole alien planet or whatever I presume out there of, you know, these these monsters where they could go fuck them up and maybe the way that they can go fuck them up is with Jada well, Viva.
0: here's the thing. Will Smith, when he did After Earth, he released a few tie-in books. He planned a whole trilogy, comics, cartoons. He had done his own After Earth cinematic universe. Right. So it makes me think he had ideas that this could go beyond the one film. Certainly, well, three films. So, okay, that's one avenue because it feels like to differentiate the first film, the second film, you've got to, like, kind of change the angle, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe it's about finding your emotions. Mm-hmm. What if it went to the extreme? Oh, What if these things, if they feed on fear, what kills them? Joy? Oh, nice. So does he perhaps, Will Smith one of the most charismatic actors in the world who unfortunately just sands the corners of his personality to be in this film and comes across as quite morose and isn't the Will Smith that we all love. What if he engages a 2IC, Jack Black? (laughs) And Jack Black is it's like a buddy cop movie where they have to fly back to the alien planet, right? Right. Or they return to Earth again because now perhaps that alien kind of somehow – Okay. created more eggs or whatever before it was killed.
1: Okay, but what about this? In the in in After Earth, because we both assume we're just jettisoning Jaden. We don't want that kid around anymore. No. Nah. But Will Smith, we keep him. He's, he's, he's marketable. He's a movie star. Box stuff,
0: office gold. So what
1: about this? You sort of inverse the relationship from the first one and maybe not Jack Black, maybe it's Dave Chappelle. <laughs> Dave Chappelle has to teach Will Smith to be funny so that Will Smith can go to- you know, Octagon Alpha or whatever the name of the stupid-ass alien planet is and make them laugh. So now there's a new mentor-student relationship where, you know, one of the world's funniest comedians is teaching the character of Cypher Rage to, you know, tell a good joke, how a, you know, set up in a punchline works, how to make the aliens laugh, and maybe a little social commentary along the way.
0: So- so it's kind of like Sideways, right? It's, it's like Sideways. It's a buddy cop film and- Wait, Sideways had a cop story? No, but basically, <laughs> we, basically Paul Giamatti, bit of a sad sack. They ended they the So cop is it Will out. Smith. And who's the guy with the blonde hair from Ned and Stacey? That guy. Ah, Ned. Yeah, Ned. <laughs> He's a funny guy. He likes to laugh. Oh, yeah, totally. They go on their little road sure. They go on a, their space road trip. Yep. And- Yep. Dave Chappelle tries to teach Will Smith to set up jokes, to relax, to chill out. And Will Smith's a bit doubtful about this. But then when-
1: You just can't get it. He keeps blowing the jokes. <laughs> and he's like, you've got to get it, man. And he's
0: like, I just can't deliver the punchline. He's <laughs> like, let's start with knock-knock jokes and we'll work our way up. Yep. Let's start with puns and just gradually increase it. And then what happens is they actually have their first encounter with the alien and it's a bit like scanners. David Chappelle just does a line, drops the mic- it's hilarious. And the alien's head explodes because the humor just overwhelms it. Right. Right. There's no fear. Right. But not only that, not only is there no fear, there is laughter and joy. And it basically explodes. It's like, you know, a John Carpenter 70s movie. But what if they get to the end and it turns out they encounter the granddaddy of all comedians or someone who does a lot of morose comedy? Who's that guy, that DJ from. Uh, is it Reservoir Dogs? Oh, Reservoir Dogs?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Stephen something? I can't remember. Yeah, Stephen Wright? Stephen Wright, that's him.
0: Yeah, right. K Billy, Super Sounds of the 70s Weekend, just keeps on coming with this little ditty that reached up to 21 in May of 1970. The George Baker Selection Little Green Bag. (laughs) <laughs> what about what about the
1: problem is that they get to the alien planet and then Dave Chappelle does his material, but it's actually all very incisive and funny social commentary stuff and the aliens are like, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand this stuff because a lot of it's got to do with, you know, uh, race and the current politics of America and they don't find any of it funny. And then Will Smith has to turn to some shitty book of limericks he found as a child that he remembers and... It turns out the fucking worst jokes ever win
0: the day. I'm thinking that basically he has to recruit a Justice League of physical comedians or people that have, like, really base humour. Oh, okay. So he gets, like, Rob Schneider. Right, okay. Right. He, he comes into it. Like, he gets uh, Benny Hill.
1: Okay. They're, they're cryogenically...
0: <laughs> they, Somehow, it seems to work on Futurama, right? Yeah, we brought the
1: head of Benny Hill. The problem is that all of his gags are about him running really fast through frame. It doesn't work. <laughs> we're fucked. Um, yeah, okay, so like the the the, the Justice League of comedians, um,
0: Jim Carrey, yeah. physical comedian,
1: right? Well, he's not funny, he's now sad, he's now a sad guy, <laughs> yeah, but.
0: I think he would bring it if he was actually asked to form a Justice League of comedians.
1: They didn't bring Jim Carrey. They just brought a DVD of Ace Ventura.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It was played on a laptop. <laughs> like, huh? Huh? Pretty good. <laughs> Look at his face. Look at him. Yep. He's
1: hilarious. Okay, so so we've got your mate Stephen Wright, Rob Schneider for some reason. Dave Chappelle, a DVD of Ace Ventura and Will Smith all going to an alien space planet. And Benny Hill's head in a bottle. And Benny Hill's head, yep, yep, in a bottle, to make aliens laugh because that's what they're lacking.
0: Exactly. And then basically they laugh, their heads explode, and essentially they commit comedy genocide. I like it. And they can reclaim Earth.
1: Um, I mean, this movie sounds fucking abysmal, but on the plus side, it is still better than After Earth. And when people would say, hey, here's a Twitter poll, tell me a movie sequel that's better than the original, people will say the total piece of crap where Dave Chappelle went to an alien space planet with a DVD of Ace Ventura and made an alien laugh.
0: I reckon they'll say, this is like the Bad Lieutenant, Port of New Orleans with Nicolas Cage, which was the sequel Ooh, yeah. to the Harvey Keitel movie. I'll go, you know what? They hired a surprisingly good director. They went batshit crazy. They hired- Oh, a- well, who are we hiring to direct this? Okay. Well, okay, we can't get in Night Shyamalan. He won't come back. He was scarred from this experience. He's not coming back.
1: He's not a comedy guy. He's not a comedy guy. There's nothing on his resume that says comedy
0: guy. No. Okay. So who the who's the guy that does all those movies for Netflix with Adam Sandler?
1: Oh, uh, Dennis Duggan? Is that his name? I don't know. Give Dennis a go, right? Hold on. Let I gotta I gotta confirm that. I'm pretty sure it is Dennis Duggan.
0: I sort of feel that a bit like doing a Adam Sandler film on Netflix. You take these guys to a wonderful location for basically a working holiday, right, the Justice League of Poor Comedians, and they have a great time and just, you know, get in the mood, you know, sort of shoot little one-liners, little zingers, and uh, do it for, you know, points perhaps, points,
1: and um, Oh, you, so you want to make it one of those lazy Adam Sandler movies <laughs> where <laughs> yes. Adam Sandler, Chris Rock and David Spade fuck off on holidays and just make a movie for the first three hours of the day <laughs> and then, yeah, fair. Exactly, yeah.
0: Yeah, Will Smith gets us a drive around, get a bit of quality time in Europe. I think, I think it's a winner. I guess the big question is what do we call this movie? Is it After After Earth? Is it After earth Oh, shit. I mean, it's a sequel.
1: I didn't think this through. It needs to be have a funny title.
0: Back to Earth.
1: That's not very funny.
0: <laughs> yeah, you give me nothing here. Help me out.
1: <laughs> I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Oh shit! This is real difficult. After Earth.
0: I always come back to the uh, the colon, and not like the one inside you, but you know, After Earth colon something. Turd Burgers twenty eight.
1: <laughs> after Earth colon then the word colon. <laughs> 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 uh, it'll, look, it'll do Okay <laughs> It'll do uh, right. Written by Gary Witter <laughs> I put my name on this shit
0: <laughs> And that's like a sequel to the critically maligned and unpopular film Starring Will Smith And unfortunately a very uncharismatic performance After Earth Colon, colon mm. Alright, Gabe That brings us to the end of the show A big thanks to our awesome sound editor, Sam Haywood, for making this episode sound so good. You can find Sam at Instagram and he is... ah Ben, what about Laughter Earth? (laughs) (laughs) Laughter Earth? Yeah, that's quite good. Yeah, okay.
1: You know, because they're... Do you want me to... I can lay it... Never mind. All right, okay. Um (laughs) Hey, you guys out there, be the judge. Is After Earth colon colon or... Laughter, Earth. Uh-huh. Huh? It is genius. Huh? Sorry, Sam. I interrupted the kudos.
0: Sam, sorry, Seb. He stepped on your he stepped on your handle, which is at Showtown Sound. At Showtown Sound. Gabe, where can listeners find more of your working musings this week?
1: Uh, Twitter, Gabe Dowrick.
0: Excellent. What a pitch. (laughs) Thank you. For more
1: laughter earth.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter, Instagram and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps. And you find all my podcasts, including Twin Movies, in the usual places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening, folks. And if you enjoyed the show, share it with your mates. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe.
1: Bye, Ben. And again, just... If you are Will Smith or a representative of Will Smith watching this, I love you. Ben loves you too. We love Will Smith. Will Smith is awesome.
0: Can you hear that sound of uh, the van reversing? Beep, 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 beep,
1: beep, beep. What is that? Beep, is that?
0: Beep. Is that them
1: turning up to murder me? <laughs> Will Smith. Will Smith definitely. Will Smith definitely done a murder.
0: <laughs> <laughs> See you, mate. Bye, bye.